Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, my favorite tree, if you think about uh, kind of being out in the world, being out in nature this time of year, it gets a little cold. I start thinking about aspen trees and going skiing. My favorite ski slope in the world was in Steamboat Springs with giant moguls through aspen trees, just kind of weaving through these things and loving it. And I've always loved aspen trees. But a couple years ago, I learned something new about aspens that I did not know. And it's interesting if you just look at some of these. I've got a picture of a few of these here. But did you know that one aspen tree is actually only a small part of a larger organism. The aspen trees are not individual trees, but through the trees, underneath the ground, in the root system, they're all one giant organism that's interconnected and all really one living being. Uh, which is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, the largest, actually the oldest known aspen clone in, 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 in the world is in Utah's Fish Lake National Forest. Some of these pictures are from that. It's also the heaviest, weighing in at, at an estimated 13 million pounds. Think about that. Uh, the, these, this one living organism that we see as individual trees is actually covers about, it says, uh, kind of the research I was doing says, it covers over 106 acres consisting of 40,000 individual trees, yet it's one living organism. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it, to think about. Now, what's interesting is even when the trees begin to die, the living organism and the interconnectedness, uh, if, if an external tree falls to the ground, they don't die because of what's underneath the ground. In fact, the, the root system uh, reproduces so fast that they continue to live for a long time, even if the trees are gone, which is a pretty remarkable thing to think about a living organism and part of it that outlasts the individual trees. Now, as I read that, that kind of scientific facts about trees, it actually got my mind to thinking about, about us and about humanity and about what that might look like for us and what it would look like for the way humans were supposed to live. Not, not tied together in a root system because that'd be weird and, uh, and awkward, right? But what if, what if we were intended to be interconnected relationally and spiritually to one another as one community? that was interconnected, that was dependent upon one another, that nourished one another, that fed one another, that gave life to one another, so that we were one thing, even though we looked like we were individuals and had our own individual display. It's interesting to me that in the first chapter of the Bible, when God created humanity, He made the first human and He said, it's what? It's, it is good, <laughs> right? He said, it's good that He created us. But then He said, it's not good for us to be alone. And he gave us a partner. And then he said, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. And so these people that he created and breathed, literally has breathed life into, and said, you're going to bear my image. You're going to be my glory bearer throughout the world. We were to be one people united in Christ, or united in, in a triune God that were really representatives of his. Now sin disrupted all that, didn't it? 
And so we began to fracture, we began to break apart, and uh, you begin to see families crumble, you begin to see civilizations crumble, you begin to see people fighting against one another, and all these things began to do. But what we see in creation is that, that we were created for community, and when we do not live together in community, bad things happen. And that's the history of the world. Friends, we need each other. And we're seeing in our world what happens when we live in isolation from one another right now. In fact, statistics are bearing this out all over the place. The health company Cigna said nearly half of Americans report feeling lonely, feeling alone or left out. One one in five people in our country say they don't have a single person they talk to on a regular basis. It's astounding, isn't it? Generation Z, those 18 to 22, are being labeled as the loneliest generation. That they feel like they're isolated. Nearly half of young people say they are moderately or extremely depressed. One in five say they are extremely lonely. It's interesting that Cigna, in this study, as a a health uh, insurer and a health organization, the, the results they came to or the conclusion they came to, based on scientific studies, was loneliness has the same impact on mortality, so on a death rate, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Is that not amazing? Now, cigarettes come with a Surgeon General's warning, but loneliness doesn't. It often goes unnoticed. It often goes un, uh, un, unacknowledged. Uh, but it's, it's more dangerous, as they said, than even obesity in our country is the loneliness epidemic, as they're calling it. Uh, friends, this is, the thing about this that shocks me is this doesn't seem like a problem we can't do something about, right? In the same surveys, they said that 8 out of 10 young people agree with the statement, I'm more likely to listen to adults in my life if I just know they care about me. There's something we can do about this, friends. In fact, uh, there are actually ways we can help. Maybe you saw this story recently in the Netherlands. Uh, statistics came out that a third of elderly people feel extremely lonely, and so they began to ask what we can do for about it. And there's a grocery store chain that, that came up with a story, and they created what they called slow lanes or chatty lanes. Got a picture here of a, of a slow lane. And these are lanes that you don't have to do self-checkout. You're not being rushed through. It's not an express lane to get you in and out as fast as you can. It's for people that say, I just want to chit-chat while I'm checking out. And so they created it, and it actually got such a good response. They've now propagated this in over 200 rest, uh, grocery stores, uh, Dutch grocery stores. For instance, it's kind of a sweet story, but it's also a little bit terrifying. That we have to create specialty aisles to get people to treat one another like human beings. It's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? We were created to connect with one another. We were created to live in community. And it's crazy that human beings, we find out, actually want to be treated like human beings. That people want to talk to other people. That those that were created and God said, it's not good to be alone. What we're finding out is that it's actually not good to be alone. That it's like the God who made us sort of knew something. Uh, crazy, right? I mean, that seem a little bit insane. Friends, what all this means is that our world, that people in our world are just desperate for community. God created us to connect in community. It's how you were designed. You've got a natural desire. And I know some of you are like, oh, I'm a little bit introverted. I don't need too much of this, right? But the fact is you need, a, you need to connect in community. All of us do. 
So turn with me today. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at a story where Jesus talks about the importance of connecting in community and really what it looks like for us to create meaningful community alongside one another. And you're going to see this is the story of the Good Samaritan. And what we're going to, what we're going to see is that Jesus tells us or gives us a picture of when humanity flourishes and also when it fails to flourish. And so he's going to give us a, a clear picture, and he's going to make a simple statement as we work through this. He says, if you do this, then you will live. And he's talking to someone who's clearly physically alive, but what he's saying is, if you do this, you're going to really live. You're going to experience a fullness of life, an abundance of life. And, and, and so he's going to give us guidance in knowing how to create real meaningful connection and real meaningful life. We're going to start in verse 25. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall we do? What shall I do to inherit internal, eternal life? He said to him, what is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So uh, set up for the story. We're going to start here before we get down to the parable of Jesus, or the story uh, that Jesus is going to tell. But it's a lawyer, and the lawyer puts him to, te- to the test, and I could tell you all kinds of lawyer jokes, like there's things that I want to go there, you're a lawyer, and you're like, oh boy, we're in trouble. This isn't that kind of lawyer, this is a, a religious lawyer, although we're going to find out he's got some of the same tendencies, right? And so as, uh, as you think about this, Luke tells us immediately this man's motive, that he came and he approached Jesus not to, to learn but to actually challenge Jesus, to put Jesus to the test. And so he's coming, he's saying, hey, what do I have to do to get resurrection life in the end? Now he's not genuinely wanting to know. What he's saying is, do you know what the law says? Do you know what, what, the, what the Old Testament says? And, and can I trust you to guide us? Because I know what it says and I want to see if you do. So he's putting Jesus to the test. Now what does Jesus do? He does what a smart person does when someone comes to challenge him. He kind of does a jujitsu. Like when this guy comes at him, he's like, let me just kind of pivot and see if let, kind of let your, let your uh, movement carry you past me. And so he turns and asks the guy a question, but he starts on common ground. And says, well, you're a lawyer. What's the Old Testament law say? This man answers the question. He actually goes to two Old Testament passages, one in Deuteronomy 6, one in Leviticus, that that these two passages were cited twice a day in the the prayers of Judaism. And so every every faithful Jew knew these two things, and they were one that came out of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that uh, speaks of God's oneness. And it says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus law where it says we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, here's what's surprising about, about the Bible. The, the, the faith of the Christian Bible tells us that when we love God, it's not just something that's for God. But ultimately, as we learn to love God, it always leads us to love other people. That somehow it connects the love of God with the love of our neighbor. And those two things are united and they're inseparable. And if you truly love God, you're always going to love, love uh, your neighbor as well. It's a devotion to God. Loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is connected directly to loving your neighbor as yourself and your devotion and commitment to love them. Friends, people, I mean, if you look around, look around at the person next to you for just a second. Here's what I want to say is, that person you looked at is made in the image of God. They're an image bearer. They are someone who literally cares, carries the fingerprints of God in their person. 
that by their very being here, they're worth, uh, they're of great worth and great value because they're the ones that are, that are called to bear God's glory throughout the earth because he made us and sent us and sustains us and cares for us. And so when you think about people that are made in the image of God, if you truly love God, you're also going to love those who are created by him as a representative of him in the world. Those two things go together. Now, verse 29, uh, the lawyer, you notice what he's going to do. He says, desiring to justify himself. Uh, lawyer's going to lawyer, right? So he's immediately going into defense mode. He's like, let me build my case. Let me show, show you exactly what this works. And what's he say? He goes, hey, hold on. Well, who is my neighbor? Like maybe there's some fine print. Maybe there's, uh, you know, you know, you need to read a contract and there's like 32 pages and it gets to the fine print and you read the first four lines and after that you just start signing stuff because you're bored out of your mind. Uh, this is what he's saying is maybe there's some fine print somewhere down in the document that says maybe this isn't as hard as you just made it sound. Like maybe I can qualify who my neighbor is. Who is really my neighbor? See, sometimes Jewish law kind of created some caveats and said, you only have to really love people who are inside the faith. You only have to really love people who are good people, who, who, who kind of practice and live the way we do. And so there, there's some exception clauses for them. And this lawyer is trying to see if there's a way to get off with only loving those who are good people and follow his rules and his practices. He's trying to soften the command, right? Now... It's easy to throw this guy under the bus, but let's be honest. Do you, do you find some people easier to love than others? Are there some groups that you feel drawn to or toward and some groups you feel, you feel like you want to push away? See, we're not, we're not that different than this guy. And, and the fact is, we don't say it out loud, but a lot of us think, like, surely I don't really have to love everyone. I mean, I know I have to love my family. Like, I know I'm supposed to love the people at church, but surely there's some people out there that I can go, like, God, that's, that one's on you. Like, you've got to take care of that one over there. And it's interesting, though, that Jesus answers the story, with a, or answers the question here with a story. Man says, who's my neighbor? What does Jesus say? It says, um, in verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, and he tells this parable. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. Now friends, Jesus is a master storyteller. And in this story, this parable, every single detail is, is intentional and it's pointed and it's well crafted. And Jesus knows exactly why it is he did it. And even the parable's layout makes a statement. You notice who the, the first two guys that come up to him are. They're the religious leaders. They're the religious types. They're the ones that this religious lawyer would have looked at and said, man, those are the good guys. Man, that's the guy. Go get me a priest. Get me a Levite. They're the ones, they're the ones you can count on. And yet Jesus is going to make them the bad guys in the story. 
And Jesus is going to make the good guy someone that the religious leader saw as the bad guy. And he's going to turn it on his head. Now, this parable is told to a religious lawyer. And so Jesus is crafting it and setting everything up to be confrontational. He's confronting this guy with his false ideas and false beliefs and trying to help him see there's a better way and a new way to really live. What he's saying to this man is that he can't shirk the responsibility to love those around him. That his, his moral positions are not an acceptable excuse. His theological convictions are not an acceptable excuse. His political affiliations and his personal preferences are not an acceptable excuse to not love someone. That ultimately he's called to love all those around him. So in verse 30 in Jesus' story, you notice, who is it that the man is, what, what do we know about the man that's hurt? We don't know anything. It just says a certain man. And that's very intentional. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who it is. This, if there's a man in need, you're the one that's called to go and love him. And so we're not, we're not told any information about the victim at all because he's not the focus. It doesn't matter who he is. He's a human created in the image of God, so he's worth caring for. So a certain man is there. And it's interesting, what, what does matter in the story is the responses of the three men uh, who encounter the injured man or the wounded man in this place. Now, this particular road that Jesus is talking about in the story uh, had a reputation for being especially dangerous. It was a 17-mile road that went from 2,600 feet above sea level to 820 feet below sea level, a rocky, winding road that went through desert terrain that had a lot of caves that were around. And it was known that bandits and robbers would hide in these caves, and they would wait for someone to come along, and they'd jump them, rob them, and take their stuff. And so it was a particularly strange, uh, dangerous stretch of road. In fact, 400 years later, historians were still talking about the dangerous road that Jesus was telling the story about, which is pretty interesting to know that this would have been a common thing that everyone in that culture would have understood. Oh, that's a guy walking down that road. Of course, there's, he was in great, he was in real danger. So this man was jumped by both multiple men. He was beaten, robbed, stripped, and left for dead. The, the word there that says left for dead literally means he was half dead. I mean, the, the life was, was draining out of this guy. He was in desperate need of help. So what happens next in the way Jesus tells the story? A priest, the elites, the, relig the religious elites, walks by, and when he sees the guy, what's it say he does? He doesn't move towards the man. It says he crossed to the other side, meaning he went out of his way to ignore the man and get away. He, he was fearful. He saw the guy there and says, I'm going to go around him. I don't want anywhere near him. But he literally had to cross the road in order to go around this guy. He didn't just miss him. Uh, it's interesting that the word Jesus says, he says, by chance, a man happens to come along. Uh, it wasn't by chance. There was, a, uh, there was a clear message to Jesus' story. But he's saying this should have been an opportunity. But it's going to be a missed opportunity. Now, there's lots of discussions about what this man's motives. Like, why did the priest not want to help him? Now, the reality is for priests, if they uh, engaged in, um, some, with an unclean person, they themselves would become unclean. And so ceremonially, he may not have been able to go and do his priestly duties when he got to town. Hey, if, if, he, if they were to touch a dead, dead man, they actually had to go through a whole process of ritual cleansing and time to, uh, before they could go back in and do the work as a priest. So maybe there's a sense of this is going to keep me from doing the things I need to do and I need to get I need to get to work so I need to keep going uh, some people think he didn't want to help a sinful person and assumes this guy got himself in this place because he deserved it and so I don't want to I don't want to step in and help him maybe he didn't want to get robbed himself maybe he's thinking man if I stop and help this guy the guys that jumped him may jump me and I could be in danger 
So it feels risky. Maybe, maybe you just was really busy and had a lot to do. Um, ever get really busy and just think, man, I, I see something, but I need to get to work. I got things, I got places to go and people to see. And maybe it was that kind of a deal. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what the motive was. Jesus doesn't tell us. All he says is that he didn't help. Uh, but when this man doesn't help, oh, good news. Another man's coming. By chance, it's a Levite. Another guy who isn't a priest, but he's just under the priest. So he's, he's a good religious guy, too, doing all the right things. And he's a trusted religious leader. And Jesus uses the exact same words for this man he used for the priest. That he saw and he walked to the other side and passed by the man and didn't do anything about it. Jesus is building to the the drama to the story, right? Not not one religious person, but two religious people passed by. Who's going to help this dying man? He's already half dead. Now, if you're the lawyer talking to Jesus, uh, you're probably sitting back going, ah, where's the story going? Like, where is he taking me? He's telling me a story here, and he's setting me up. And so he's probably thinking about it. He's like, oh, this guy's he's an anti-institutional guy. He doesn't like religiosity. He doesn't like kind of the institution of the church. He's got some issues with the church. So he's going to make this layman come in and, and save him because he doesn't want it to be this official pastor. And like, I, I kind of get that. But that's the way the lawyer maybe was thinking that it's going to be. But Jesus is going to actually go a step even beyond that. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Now, that doesn't mean much to you and to me. In that world, a Samaritan, for Jewish religious folks, was, was an outcast. They were viewed as a half-breed. They were viewed, uh, there, there were rules that said, uh, to sit down and eat with a Samaritan is to eat with, is to be like to consume something that's unclean. So the stuff that was forbidden in the Old Testament law to, have a, to associate with these people was like their uncleanness was going to drip all over me and I was going to become unclean, so I'm just going to keep it at arm's length. You may remember there's a story of Jesus. He said he walked up and saw a Samaritan woman. They began to have dialogue with a Samaritan woman and asking her to draw up some water there at the well. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for water? Because it was so shocking that he would, that he would step across that barrier, that breach, and engage in real relationship with her. Then his disciples show up and they're like, dude, why are you talking to a woman? And not only that, but a Samaritan woman. And his disciples were confused by the fact that Jesus engaged with this woman at the well. That's the culture in which they lived. And Jesus is challenging that and says, but a Samaritan shows up in this story. And he's the one who ends up becoming the hero. Uh, you think Jesus is stepping on some toes here? Yeah, I think he is. Now, it's interesting to me that for the lawyer, uh, the Samaritan would be the last person he would think that, would, that Jesus would turn into a hero in the midst of the story. But back in Jesus' story, the Samaritan, what does he do? You notice what? He has a different reaction. Instead of passing by on the other side, it says, other side, it says, when he saw the man, he what? He had compassion. He was the one that, that, that noticed there was a man in need. He's the one that moved towards the man. He's the man who felt something internally and said, I need to do something to help this guy who's in great, great danger. It wasn't the priest or the Levite that acted with mercy, but the one who was the outcast in their minds that acted with mercy. Now, he was likely, in, in, in this story, he was likely a traveling businessman who was just passing through the region, likely going to market, trying to sell something. He was on a business trip. And you can imagine on a business trip, he was loaded down with goods. Uh, he had a donkey that was with him, and he was probably urgently trying to get somewhere to provide for his family. And yet, he's the one that stops and has compassion. Uh, friends, do you know how God revealed himself when he first kind of told people who he was? 
In, in the book of Exodus, God reveals himself and the name that he gives himself uh, to Moses when he announced who he was. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. What, he's, what Jesus is saying is that this Samaritan looked like God. He, he acted with compassion, like our God acts with compassion. Our God sees needs in our world, and he's compassionate and wants to send a rescuer for us. This man had compassion on this man. So what, is, what we're meant to see here is that this man has an attribute of God about his own person. That, that something about who God is is reflected in the way this man interacts with his neighbor. And he's going to be the one that acts in love, which is a remarkable thing. Let me just make a few observations on what it looks like to, uh, on the actions of a good Samaritan. Uh, when we love our neighbors... Uh, the first thing we see here, as we seek to kind of learn how, how it is that we can love our neighbors, the first thing we see is that it's personal. You notice that he, it says he sees the man. So he looks, and he, he doesn't go past the man. He doesn't just ignore the man. He doesn't just kind of look the other way, but he sees him and acknowledges him. So there's a personal engagement that's there. And what that demonstrates is an outward focus, that he's aware of other people and cares. Next, you see uh, that, that it's also merciful. He, he refuses to just walk past the man like the priest did, and like the Levi did. Uh, but he, he moves towards the man. It breaks down these stereotypes that say, this guy can't engage with that guy. This guy's fearful of that. He moves past the fear and engages the man in a merciful act. And where the religious leaders avoided him and kept their distance. Thirdly, we see that it's intentional. He moves, he, he takes, kind of makes the first move. Friends, this, this challenges a mindset of passivity. It challenges the idea of, of life as convenience. The, the life is just going to be easy, but he stopped in his tracks and has to do something, and so he's intentional. You notice he also, it's also a practical act. Um, he meets a real need. I mean, this models for us how it is that we ought to engage with others. When you look around and you see someone with a need that you can do something about, what he's saying is, you ought to try to help. Seems reasonable, right? And what is it that this guy does? It says he binds up his wounds. He likely had to rip off part of his own clothes or take some material of his own to bind up this guy's wounds and tie him up. Uh, then it says he takes his oil and his wine and he uses that medicinally to cleanse the wounds and to try to care for it and bring some comfort to it. Now, that was going to be a sacrifice to him because like a lot of guys on a business trip, he probably wanted a glass of wine at the end of a long day. And when he got to wherever he was going, he had brought that to, in order to, to, to have some wine or to have some oil to to, to cleanse himself from the, the gross dust of, of the walk and the journey that he'd been on. So he sacrifices those things and uses that to care for, care for this man. Uh, not only that, it says that he uh, is, is also sacrificial. And also he says he's got an animal, but he loads the man up, picks him up, puts him on his own donkey, which means what? It means, it means he's going to have to walk the rest of the journey. So he puts this man on his donkey, and he's going to sacrifice his place in order to, to walk ahead or walk alongside this man, which is going to take a lot longer. Um, this affirms really just a Christ-like character and a Christ-like humility of service. Uh, you realize that sometimes just serving someone in a practical way is an incredibly spiritual thing. And it's also thoughtful. He takes him to an inn and care, to care for him. So he doesn't just kind of drop him off at a street corner somewhere, but he gets there and he goes to a, a, an inn and he pays to get this guy a room. And in fact, it says he personally stays with him overnight and watches to take care of him before he goes on about his journey. And so he's, he's very thoughtful in caring for this man. 
Uh, then lastly, I think the seventh thing we see is that it's also reasonable. I notice what it says he does. That uh, In that world, innkeepers were not known to just be generous. They were in it for the business. And so he, he doesn't just assume that this guy is going to be taken care of. Instead, he says, I want to provide for him. And he leaves cash in order to take care of the guy. And, and based on numbers, he probably left enough cash to provide for this guy for about 24 days. Enough time that, that he would be able to re- be restored to health, hopefully, and be able to go about his way. And then he also says, if there's anything else that's owed, don't put him out. I will come back here on my way back and I will make sure he's cared for. Or I will make sure to, to make it right. I will repay whatever is owed. Don't make him pay it. And do you see how thoughtful that is? How intentional? How practical? How sacrificial? I love the image of what Jesus portrays of what this relationship with this guy looks like when he cares for his neighbor. It's not transactional. It's not demanding. It's not controlling. He's not trying to negotiate the outcome. He's, not, he's also not codependent. You notice he doesn't adopt a man and take him home forever. He says, I'm going to provide for him so that he can get his feet back on the ground and then I'm going to move on. But he's trying to meet a practical need. He's not doing this for the sake of appearance or getting noticed. Friends, this is what compassion in action looks like. Someone who loves their neighbor as themselves. Take care to meet needs in practical ways. So then Jesus finishes the story that he told. And what does he say? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, Jesus uses significant wording. He says, which one proved to be a neighbor? Right? It could be, we could say, which one became a neighbor? Which one emerged into the space of actually being a neighbor who loves someone as themselves? And he asked this question of the lawyer, and you notice the lawyer's answer. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He doesn't want to give that guy credit. He just says, well, the one. That guy who showed mercy, he's the one. It's interesting that he gets the point Jesus is making about mercy and compassion, but he himself still can't move past himself to offer mercy and compassion to Samaritans in the story. And now Jesus pushes him a little further. You notice Jesus taps him on the forehead and said, Now you go and do likewise. No, he didn't do that. You guys are paying attention, right? No, Jesus didn't tap him on the forehead. He didn't reach out and like thump him on the chest. But, but Jesus does get very pointed, doesn't he? He says, Now you go and do likewise to this lawyer. And he's wanting him to understand that this is where life is truly found. Do you remember what he said to the, the lawyer earlier in the, in the passage? He says, do this and you will what? Live. He's answering this man's question. Uh, that this is, the, this is the path to the real life, to real human flourishing, to the way to live in the way in which God made you. Now it's not saying that if you love enough, you're going to earn your salvation. Because if you remember earlier in the question he asked about, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What he's saying is that if you truly have put your faith and truly believe in, in God and you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your natural outflow of that is going to be that you're going to love others. He's not saying that you earn your salvation through love. He's saying if you're saved and you truly belong to God, this is the, the fruit of the life that you will live in the way in which you'll engage. Friends, do we want to flourish in life? Do you want a family that flourishes? A church that flourishes? A city, a country, a world that flourishes? That that looks like the way God intended us to look? It's going to come when we live this out. When we love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And we do that when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Friends, if you want to know how to flourish in a messed up world, do good to others wherever you find them, regardless of who they are. And it will, it will be an aid to us. This is how we build community. Um, we love God enough to, to, love, to love others. Uh, my old professor who wrote a uh, commentary on the book of Luke, and I'm giving you a little bit of detail here just to say, uh, my old professor is not a touchy-feely sort of guy. But he wrote over 2,000-page commentary just on the book of Luke and devoted his life to studying Jesus and what Luke said in Luke and Acts. And that's his specialty. And he's a world-renowned Greek scholar and all those things. This is an intellectual, smart guy. Here's what he had to say when he boiled down what Jesus was trying to say through this parable. He says, Love for God expresses itself in a life that is sensitive to others. This combination is how life is pursued and found. The Samaritan cared for the person he'd never seen before without asking questions. The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving where need exists. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to those whose needs we can meet. Friends, I said at the beginning that Jesus' teaching would teach us when humanity flourishes and when it fails to flourish. This is what it's about. Jesus is saying, if you really want to live, then this is how you do it. Um, he, he was talking about loving God and loving others. Friends, this is why we're in this series and we're talking about waking up to deep, meaningful life in Christ. What Jesus says is, not, he's saying to people who are alive, but if you want to really live, you have to follow God and what he says. And you have to trust him. In Christianity, belief, a deep belief is never isolated from meaningful community where people seek to look out for others and to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. Um, one man said, love that comes from the heart always works itself out in the hands. That if there's something real that's happening here, it's going to happen here in tangible ways as well. And this is why I think it's so confusing in our world when Christians don't love their neighbors well. It's because when we fail to do this, people look and there's a disconnect. Because they look and they go, well, but didn't Jesus say? And they scratch their heads and go, you don't look like Christ. And that's ultimately, when we talk about being deeply devoted disciples of Jesus, we talk about being authentic followers of Jesus, it's not that we're going to mirror him perfectly. But there ought to be a desire in each of us that flows out and says, I want to love like Christ did. I want to be compassionate like the God of the universe. And I want to move towards people in practical ways. Uh, friends, I, here's what I want you to know, because I, I know some of you are probably here today, and maybe you're a doubter, or you're a skeptic because of some of what you've seen in the church. Uh, maybe you've stubbed your toe and experienced some church hurt through uh, your engagement with the church, and you've been around religious people that lack compassion and courage to love in real ways. Maybe you're a disoriented churchgoer who's maybe just fed up with it all and you're not quite sure and here's what I want to say to you Jesus was fed up too Jesus was not okay with it Jesus told this story to confront religious people who didn't love their neighbor as themselves because he wanted that to be addressed friends truth without character is hypocrisy truth without compassion is cold truth without humble service is empty we have to have both but when deep belief in the gospel creates people of character and compassion who live and look like Christ, that community becomes compelling because it reminds them 
of our Savior. It reminds them of our King. It reminds them of who Christ is. And friends, I honestly believe these days offer Christians an incredible opportunity for us to engage our world in ways that blow people's minds because they're so lonely and they're so isolated and they're so hurt through just the the bumps and bruises of life that when someone steps and doesn't go around them but moves towards them and says, how can I help? And gets down on the knees and begins to lift someone up and say, I want to be a blessing to you. I think we're going to shine brightly in the world in a unique way. Can Can I close with just a little biblical vision for you of what God's trying to do in this thing called the church? Do you remember where I started and I said in Genesis that God breathed life into humanity and when he breathed life into him, he said that you were created good and because of that, he said that, you, uh, that it's not good for man to be alone. What happens, what is it Jesus came to do? He came to rescue a fallen, broken humanity and bring new life. And in fact, that's why the Bible says uh, that, uh, that, that we are all new creations, that we are born again to experience a new life. And so all those who put their faith in Christ, it, God breathes new life into them by His Spirit. And through that, it's good. And so it says that, that, that everything that you were is gone. All the, all the baggage, all the dirt, all the stuff is gone. You're washed white as snow. And you're like a new creation that steps in to a new life. Do you know when God recreates, when he renews, when he brings new life, it's still not good for man to be alone? Just like it wasn't right in the, in the original creation, in the new creation, it's not right for man to be alone. So in the New Testament, after Christ comes to rescue sinful man, humanity, what happens? He sends his spirit to breathe new life in, and when the first act of new life is that you're, baptized, you're to be baptized. And being baptized is to be initiated into a new community. That you're brought into a new family because it's not good for man to be alone. And so this initiation rite of the church connects us to a community that's essential to Christian faith. Uh, This was God's design and what it is he called us to do. It's why 1 Peter 2 says, But you, talking to all those who are Christians in the church, he said, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's made us a new community. And we're supposed to display what God's life is like in that new community to our world. In the way in which we love one another, in the way in which we love those outside the walls of our church. So we speak of church as family. We speak about the church gathering. We see things like it's, Uh, Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints because it's not good for us to be alone. We're always together, together, and then we scatter and go out into our world. It's why there's dozens of one another verses in the Bible. Do you know there's at least 41 times in the New Testament where it talks about how we're to love one another? It gives us a command that says, and uses the phrase one another. And so uh, 15 times it says that we are to love one another. Uh, One time we're told to instruct one another. Five times we're told to encourage one another. I think that's telling, right? It's so easy to get focused on telling everyone what to do. It's so hard to just encourage image bearers of God. But five times we're told to encourage one another. Do you know that four times you're told to greet one another? Isn't that amazing? It didn't seem like that big a deal, does it? It's almost like God knew that someday people were going to come into church and not say hello to the people on the row in front of them or in front of them or behind them. 
that people are going to come into a church, this new community that Jesus died to create and breathe his life and his spirit into and created this new people that's a family that sometimes when people come in and they just walk past someone and not even acknowledge them. The four times we're told to greet one another, which is pretty remarkable. What if we were a church that was just known for, man, they'll greet your socks off when you walk in that place. Like, I mean, not like, don't be weird, but just like, notice people. Say hello. Don't walk past them. Introduce yourself. Invite them to your small group. Invite them to lunch. Connect with people. Um, what, when, when that happens effectively, you know what happens when we get up and we say welcome? Everyone's like, oh, they had to say that. But when you do it, they go, oh, they care about me. They saw me. They moved towards me. They talked to me. They invited me. Let's be a church that greets one another. Incidentally, um, we're told to have compassion for one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, and many more things. Uh, Friends, you know this is why we talk about small groups and serve teams every single week. It's not because we run out of other things to talk about. We talk about it all the time because we want to connect you in communities where you, you can live out the one another's together. So get connected. Jump into relationship with others. As we move to UCO and into our building downtown, we need everyone to become a greeter. We need everyone to jump in and serve. We, uh, we've got babies that you need to hold on the serve team. We've got kids that you need to, to go and teach and use your gifts. We've got uh, students that need to be discipled. We've got international students at UCO we want to connect with. We've got college ministry we want to do. We've got people that gather together in prayer. and We want to gather in prayer ministries. We want to scatter throughout the city and be a blessing and be equipped to go do those things. And we need people to facilitate that. We need people to help run live stream and production. We need all these things. And, and none of those are just about us trying to meet a need. They really are us trying to live out what Jesus said, which is, if you want to really live, connect in community and invest in meeting the needs of those around you. And ultimately, that's how we are to live. It's also how we build trust and goodwill in our community. You know, our influence in our city happens most effectively when we gather like this. We love the Lord. We worship Him. We get built up and then we scatter. And we scatter throughout this whole city. And you guys go as lights. And you go as lights that point people to Jesus and you live for Him and you love and you meet needs of those that are around you. Wherever it is that you work, study, live, play, shop, that you go and you just be those who don't walk past, but you engage the person next to you and you love your neighbor as yourself. And you do it all because of Christ and because you want to look like Him. He said to us, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Friends, let's live like that. Sound good? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us lights, that you would make us those who love first the trying God of the universe who made us, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we fall short, we would confess, we'd meet us in your grace, and you, by your Spirit, would continue to transform us and make us more loving of of who you are but father i pray that doesn't start there that doesn't terminate in us but that that love somehow flows through us out to all those we encounter for your glory and for the good of our world pray it in christ's name amen